Let us pray for our America. Let us pray for our president, all those who are battling this virus. Let's pray that God with his spirit will move with power and beginning with us, his people, bring back renewal, cleansing, purity, honesty, integrity, and truth. Pray about those personal things in your own life, your family, your friends. Humbly, Lord, we come before you. Do your healing work. Oh, Lord, we ask in the name of the healer, Jesus Christ. Amen. In mythology, there's a story entitled, When the mouse ate the cookie, a mouse knocked on the door of a home. A boy looked out and said, what do you want? And the mouse said, all I want is a cookie. And in this mythological story, the mouse came in, the boy gave him a cookie, and he said, do you have some milk? He went and poured him some milk. He said, do you have a straw? He went and got him a straw. And the mouse said, I would also like to have a napkin. And he went and got him a napkin. And as the story in mythology goes, finally the mouse had eaten everything in the house and had eaten the house itself. And the boy was in the cold and froze to death. When we become post-Christian America, and we're about that far away from it, post-Christian America will not be enough. All of a sudden, there will have to be an anti-Christian America. Because the mice are everywhere, and they're seeking to redefine everything in our culture. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in a war. And the greatest tragedy of war is that sometimes we're in it and we do not respond to it. We respond to it like these animals would respond. Look at them. We're like a deer in a headlight. All that's going on, we, we're, we're just frozen in space. A deer in a headlight. We don't know what to do. We're frozen in the middle of a war. Others of us are blind as a bat. 
You know, bats cannot see. We discovered radar because that's how bats go out. Those signals go out. Some of us are blind as a bat. We don't, we don't see this. This is a, this is a passing thing. It, it will go away. I've been here before. We're blind as a bat in the middle of a war. Others of us, we're like an ostrich. We put our head in the sand. <laughs> I'm just going to wait for all this to go away. I know there's some confusion and some conflict, but I'm just going to keep my head in the sand and ignore it. Others are life or turtle in the shell. I'm going to stay in this shell. It's not going to bother me. I'm protected in this shell. I've got backups. I'm going to stay in my shell and let the world go to hell. Are you responding like one of these animals? Is that sort of your response at this time? When we are in the middle of a war for the very soul and heart of each and every one of us, no one will be left out. How are you responding? How am I responding? Now, in a war, there are many battles. And we're going to talk about our true enemy. We're going to talk about the nature of the war. But we've been talking about battles within this war that we are engaged in. And the first battle we talked about was the battle for truth. There has to be authority. There has to be something that we can look to and say, that is absolute, unapologetic, no fine print. This is truth. And we decided that the Bible is indeed true truth because it's the word of God. God gave us instructions, clear instructions as to how we are to conduct ourselves in the middle of a war and how we can win this war. So we start with the Bible as truth. We talked about that. That was the first battle. Then we talked about the battle for life. And we discovered that life, all life, all human life is made in the very image of God. Therefore, there is that divinity in every person who's ever been born on this earth. The battle for life, the second battle that we looked at. And then we looked at the whole realm of sexuality. If you will think and look at the major questions we're facing in the moral realm, it all deals with sexuality and how we handle this basic drive that's in every person, sexuality. And in the battle of sexuality, we have pulled out the very front line of that battle, and it's the battle for marriage. Marriage. Ladies and gentlemen, marriage is the foundation upon which all of civilization rests. Let me say that again. Marriage is the basic foundation upon which all civilization rests. Genesis 2, verse 22. 
Eve was created from the rib of Adam, and that little verse says that God took Eve to Adam. Marriage, first institution, first word, the bottom line, the foundational rock upon which everything else is built. From marriage comes family, comes credibility, comes life, life worth living. Now let me go back and review marriage. We've already looked at Genesis. God says we're to leave, cleave, become one flesh with no shame, right? Naked with no shame. By the way, that naked with no shame, most of us say, well, that means that you're naked. The nakedness there isn't just a physical negative. That's a little bitty thing. The nakedness there is vulnerability. When you get married, when I get married, we are vulnerable to the person to whom we're married, male or female. And in marriage, you have the best training for selfless love you'll ever get. Marriage trains us for selfless love, and that's important. It is in that environment, by the way, that we really see all of our sin. I can explain away my sin, I can rationalize, I can play the game, I can be a phony, and we can go through life semi-hypocritical to people who know us. But in marriage, we see ourselves, and those who do not see themselves and their shortcomings in marriage, that's what it means to be transparent, to be open. Marriage is a mystery, Paul said. It is training in selfless love and it's understanding the problems, the inequities, the hypocrisy in your life and my life, it will be exposed. That's what it needs to be open and naked with your mate. Now, Jesus talks about marriage. He expounds on the Genesis passage. Look at it in Mark chapter number 10, beginning with verse six. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God gave us gender. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. God gave us marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. God gave us sex. And as they are no longer two, but one flesh, God gave us a new identity. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God has given us exclusivity. This is all involved in the beautiful, glorious mystery of marriage. Look what God has given us. It is a wonderful thing and it's a sacred thing. But what happened to so many marriages? Sometimes it's infidelity. It's adultery, destroys so many marriages. You say, what's the leading problem of the destruction of marriage today? Sometimes we would say that uh, it is the problem of money. Others would say it's the problem of sex. I wonder where the biggest problem is located in marriage. 
that leads to that deadly thing called divorce. By the way, divorce is suicide. Do you know that? It's suicide. Because when two become one flesh, okay, there's a new person. And when that new person dies through divorce, that is suicide. Let me say there are grounds for divorce. Make no mistake about it. Biblical grounds for divorce. And where there are grounds for divorce in the Bible, there's always grounds for remarriage when there are biblical grounds. But let me say that divorce comes because sometimes of money, sometimes of immorality. And sometimes it comes in a strange kind of way. He does not have enough money and she does not have enough sexuality to satisfy him. Let me tell you something about divorce. We've heard for a long time, well, divorces are 50-50 in divorces. The truth is today, fewer people are getting married. In 1960, 70.2% of the people who were of a marriageable age got married. 1960, 72% plus got married. Today, in the past five or six years, about 51% of those who are in marriageable age get married. Isn't that interesting? wonder why that is. So much people are living together and are not married. They're cohabitating together and they're not married. In fact, more children are brought up in homes where the man and the woman are not married than in homes where there is a divorce. The the cohabitation has doubled since the turn of the century. Doubled since the turn of the century. And therefore, we look at divorce, it's no longer 50%. Divorce from those who are married from 2000 following is, is about two-thirds remain married, one-third get divorced. Isn't that interesting? Two-thirds remain married, more cohabitation, not choosing to get married, but two-thirds of those who marry, remain married and only one-third get a divorce. And that one-third who get a divorce, we've seen in some polls, well, 50% of them are Christians. But the name Christian, the title Christian, and recently, I don't know what it was, Pew Research or Barner who said it. They said, let's look at that little area. How many divorces take place where the couples worship together? Worship together. Not just the general broad title, I've been baptized, I'm a member of the Oh, no. Not just the general. How many divorces take place out of that one-third that gets divorced today that, are, that they worship together, and this new survey said 3%. Did you hear that? 3%. Because if we worship corporately on the weekend, that leads us to believe there's worship privately together, sometimes the rest of the week. It is a beautiful word about what it means to worship God regularly and faithfully in his house and in our homes. So interesting. But on the other side of the coin, there's a bill before the legislature in Mexico, and there are some in our government now who are proposing that if marriage is simply a contract, 
Let's start off with a minimum of two years. <laughs> you know, let's write a contract and it'll be a contract of two years. You could have a five-year contract. It could have provisions for renewal. If it's simply a civic matter, let's just sign up for a certain time and see if we want to renew. Some people think, boy, that would be a great idea. See, now we have no-fault divorce. You know where it came from? Ronald Reagan. I like Reagan. He made a critical decision about this. The idea that, to make it simple, no-fault divorce. If you have a contract to buy a Honda and you sign all up for that, that has more force in the code of law than marriage does today when nobody is at fault. And so, therefore, we have divorce many times. It's just, well... You know, I don't like the way she cooks, and I'm upset now. And we think love needs to be there. Love is something you do. It's not an ongoing established fact. So we have a whole new world of marriage. But marriage is a gift of God. It is a sacred thing. And I'll tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. When we work at it and we grow and we give the highest priority to the happiness of our mate, and our mate gives the highest priority to us, you have a marriage that sings, that works, that is alive, that is holy. Life is sacred. We know that. We're made in the image of God, and the sexual part of life is sacred. We've talked about that, and marriage is the holy part that God has given us as a provision for procreation, a provision for pleasure, and a symbol of the relationship between the Christian and the bridegroom, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Powerful, powerful, basic entity. But marriage is under attack today. It has been redefined. Let me begin by saying, 2013, the all-wise Supreme Court found in the 14th Amendment something that you have to be a legal gymnast to figure out, but when you can read something and you can make it mean anything you want it to mean in postmodern understanding, they found the provision for Gay marriage, amazing, amazing, astounding. And let me say up front, there is no such thing as gay marriage. It doesn't exist. Gay is not a modifier of marriage. You see, marriage is a thing. It exists. It has been defined. It is something. You no more can say, well, I'm going to make a circle into a square. Try that one out. A whole new world of geometry. Here is a circle, but it is now a square. And you say, well, this is a new form of marriage. It is not. It is impossible because marriage has been defined. It has been described. We've already read God brought marriage into existence. 
and therefore gay marriage is impossible. But what is the argument from the homosexual community? What do they say? They say, well, I have affection, I have love toward this person of the same sex. Who are you to deny me this relationship? And they say, those who deny this relationship, man, uh, let me tell you something. To my knowledge, there is no credible group now or then or forever who wants to deny in a pluralistic society relationships anyone wants to have inside the law. There are no laws prohibiting gay relationships. There's no criminality involved in that. We have the First Amendment. But the idea that you can tag the gay relationship as marriage is simply dishonest. No more than a square can be a circle. And then we better drop back and see another argument we hear from the homosexual community. The argument is, I was born this way. Now, there's no doubt about it. There is inclinations and passions toward same-sex built in some people. But how did this get to be there? There is no evidence that there is a gay gene that is totally illegitimate, phony science. But therefore, how do individuals evolve into this lifestyle? There's been numerous, hundreds, thousands of studies And usually it comes from abuse, usually sexual abuse when that person was young. Many times it comes from seeing raw pornography, and this totally disorients them. But so many times it's someone who introduces them, we would say seduces them at a low moment and gives them another sense of pleasure that they were not finding. Now, this is how a gay generally comes into being, and and we understand that. It can be abuse through raw pornography they cannot handle and through someone else introducing them this lifestyle. So let me rush and say once again, as I've already stated, we in the body of Christ accept anybody and everybody We have adulterers, we have fornicators, we have liars, we have murderers, we have those who are engaged in every kind of immorality in the body of Christ. They are here. All are welcome. Every we accept anybody and everybody, but acceptance does not mean affirmation. And we do not applaud. We accept. We seek to love and care and listen to every one of us. And we're a whole bunch of people of messed up lives. Every single one of us here with no exceptions. But we have acceptance. And then we see what kind of acceptance is it? There is a social acceptance. We accept people socially. The Bible teaches this, this. In biblical days, when you sit down and eat with someone, you were associating with them. Peter was accused of this. Paul got in trouble with this. You sit down, there is social acceptance. And there is legal acceptance. Certainly legally, we would not say, boy, put this person in jail. We have legal acceptance of all people in the body of Christ. But then there's intellectual acceptance. That's a different thing. That's a different thing. 
So we look and see we cannot intellectually and biblically because of what the Bible teaches about this lifestyle, there will not be an accommodation. There'll be an accommodation there, but there'll be no applause and no affirmation. Why? Intellectually, we know what God has said. Have you noticed something, folks? Just, just for a way of illustration, have you ever seen anybody seeking to live inspired by the Spirit, by biblical principles as a single or as a married person, by biblical principles, and their life is all messed up? Have you ever heard of that? No, you never will. God's way for marriage and life and sexuality is a way that really, genuinely, always works always functions properly and beautifully. So then you have intellectual acceptance. No. Social acceptance, yes. Legal acceptance, certainly. Intellectual acceptance, no. Because we have principles by which we go. For example, let's say that you came to me and said, your friend, I accept you legally, accept you socially, and you say, you know, if you put sand in your gas tank, it will really help your car to run. It will be a super thing. Now, intellectually, I don't think this would work. No, no, no. I say, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I put a little sand in my gas tank. My car is running better than it ever has before. I'd say, no, intellectually, I can't agree with that. I can't accept that intellectually. And then you'd say, well, you know, you're welcome to do that. That's your choice. You put sand in your tank if you want to, that's fine. But I have reason to think if you put, keep on putting sand in the gas tank, you know what will happen? That filter will gradually get clogged, little filter that protects the rest of the motor, and that filter is clogged. As it's getting clogged, you're gas per miles will begin to slow down and your motor will not be functioning. But when it's totally clogged, bang, that car will stop. This is the way it is. We would say to those who are engaging in a lifestyle that's contrary to the principle of God, whatever that lifestyle may be, whatever form of immorality it would be, you're putting sand in the gas tank of your life, immorality in the gas tank of your life. It may seem good, it may feel good, it may look good, but eventually your life will be clogged up and you will not function as God Almighty has designed you to function. So this is the way that we have to live. Acceptance, but not affirmation. Love. And then we separate the lifestyle from the life. In other words, we love the sinner, but hate the sin. We love the swindler, but hate the swindling process. But in the LBGT lifestyle, they define themselves by what they do. And we would say to anyone in this lifestyle, you're more than that. You're, you're bigger than that. We love you as a person, but we do not approve your lifestyle. It's like putting sand in the gas tank in a period of time. It will 
destroy your health, it'll destroy your mentality, it'll destroy your acceptance, and you'll be in big trouble in this life and even, of course, with God. I would say that to an adulterer, I'd say that to a liar, I'd say that to anybody, and I would say that we don't need to be identified by what we do. God loves us and we're to love one another as to the person that we are. And that's so important we make that particular distinction. Now, let me say something that you'd say, boy, our pastor got political. No, you can say your pastor got moral. Let me tell you what's happening. I have read most of the Democratic platform. Very few of you have. Maybe none. And I can tell you from a moral perspective that it is clearly stated, though sometimes with high sounding words, built against the destruction of the nuclear family. One man, wife, children, it is geared for that way. And it adheres to everything I understand to the total agenda of the LGBT community, about as perfect as you can find. On top of that, it is absolutely, thoroughly a socialistic doctrine. Now, that is what it says. Therefore, on that basis, I have to say no. When they say that a child, a teenager, is moving to a transitional gender, and the state will pay for that transitional desire, I say no. When they say that, look, if a, if a teenager is pregnant, the parents have no say-so as far as the abortion is concerned, I say no. So it's an attack on the family as thoroughly as you could ever see an attack, and I stand up and say no, because the liberals and the progressives, they never build anything by the very nation of progressive. They never build. They're anti, 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 destroy, destroy. And they not only want to redefine marriage, they want to eliminate marriage altogether until there's total sexual promiscuity. That is exactly the agenda that they're seeking for. Make no mistake about it. Now, It's difficult for all of us, we're all sinners. And by the way, these no sins are no worse than my sins or your sin. If my sin is a sin of anger, it may be just as deadly in God's sight or more so than the sins of the flesh. The difference of sexual sins, they take place inside your body, the Bible says. It is inside kind of, whereas other sins are out here. That's the problem with sexual sin, whatever form it may take. Remember, we've already established, let me say it again, that in marriage there is freedom, there is celebration, and every other kind of sexual relationship is ponia and is forbidden by God. Every other kind of sexual relationship. Marriage, celebration, freedom, every other sexual relationship is ponia, forbidden by God. But let me tell you something. Don't in the process of all this battle in which we're in, it's a battle for marriage. The goal is to eliminate marriage altogether. Make no mistake about it. 
It's like the mouse who ate the cookie. Keep on going. Keep on going. Till the whole moral climate is totally changed and we no longer have a Judeo-Christian country. We have a country that is godless, that is nothing but humanism, and a nothing of it feels good, it must be all right mentality. But that's not how marriage is meant to be. This week, a friend I've known for a long time from South Carolina called me. Russell Ashmore, and he brought me up to date. Man, he, he's, been, he's 91 years old. He, he was married for 65 years. His wife died a few years back. He was telling me about all of his children whom I knew and who they married and their children and our great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. He had almost 40 in that number, and it is beautiful to hear just almost every one of them are walking with God in Jesus Christ. I said, what a legacy you have, Russell. And he told me about his wife and said, she died a few years ago, the day after our 65th wedding anniversary. Said she was in the hospital and said, every year we were married, I took her a long stem red rose. He said, I took 65 long stem red robes and a vase up to her hospital. He said, almost killed me carrying it up. <laughs> he said, I gave it to her. And she smiled and said, you know, Russell, I'm just ready to go home. He said, honey, if you're ready to go home, go home. Next day, she graduated. That reminded me of a classic story along the same line. I put it in my book on the Ten Commandments of Marriage, and it's a wonderful story about another couple. They were friends in all the way through school and high school. They became boyfriend and girlfriend, and he wanted to marry her, and her dad said not until she graduates from high school. So she graduated at 10 o'clock in the morning. They got married at 7 o'clock that night. And it was the kind of couple when, you, when you'd see one, you'd see the other. They, they, they played together. They laughed together. They, they traveled together. They were in business together in a car business. Uh, and they just did everything. They were inseparable. They were like the dynamic duo. They lived in Arizona. And they had a magnificent life, a magnificent family. And they, they, they were just in harmony they were a team, totally one, a team. But they'd been married for 72 years, and they were in a catastrophic automobile accident. Both of them crushed critical condition. They were in the hospital. And the nurses and doctors would go see her, and she'd say, well, how is he doing? Go see him. I'm going to be all right. They'd go see him. He'd say, no, no, get out of here. Go see her. How is she doing? And when they realized that both of them were on the very edge of death, they put them in the same room, side by side in a bed. And these are two that had cheered for the University of Arizona. They'd been born. They were just a team. And immediately they got side by side, bang, they started holding hands, holding hands. He died first. 
the families, they told your dad is gone. And the son said, no, 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 look, look. His heart monitor is still beating. He's alive. Nurse said, no, they're holding hands so tightly, so tightly that her heartbeat is going all the way into his heart. And that's the reason his monitor is still beating. An hour later, an hour later, she died. And the son said at their memorial service a beautiful thing. He said, you know, my dad always said, a good woman is worth waiting for. And he said, God took him home first. And he waited right outside of heaven until my mom got there. And they went in together and met Jesus. That is God's design. 